And now please take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. planning to preach on Romans 6 today, but it took me so long to prepare the Sunday school message. I reverted to a message that I preached recently in um, North Bergen. I was asked to preach um, at the recent ordination of Ariel Rodriguez to be a pastor there in North Bergen. And the text I was told I should preach from was Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And I've never preached on that passage before, so that's what I'm going to preach here. Although it will not be an ordination sermon. But let me read from verse 7 through verse 16 so we get the, the whole context here. Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. All right. Well, let's... Hmm. Did I lead in prayer after I read the text? Nobody thinks so, so okay. I don't think so either, so I will. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us now by teaching us from your word, and we ask that you would glorify your name, and we ask these things not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus, who has done for us what we would have had to do, but absolutely could never do to save us. Amen. Amen. And I realize that that was not a good question because I just read the text, but I gave my introduction before I read the text and I had the introduction lifted, listed after my note to read the text. So that's what 
my confusion. I'll just blame it on old age. All right. So we're going to notice two things in this text. We're going to notice Christ's gift, gifts, I should say, Christ's gifts to his church, verse 11. And then secondly, and here's where we'll spend most of our time, Christ's goal for his church, verses 12 and 13. That's the text I was asked to preach. And so I'm just going to focus on those three verses uh, that is at the ordination. So let's notice Christ's gifts to his church, verse 11. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So let's notice two things about these gifts. They could break, we can break them down into two categories. And the two categories are extraordinary and ordinary. Those are um, Puritanic terms, but they're good terms because the Puritans use them to talk about two different kinds of gifts among the gifts that are listed here. The extraordinary gifts would be gifts that are men who are given to the church to bless the church, but they're men, first of all, who enjoy direct communication from Jesus Christ. They heard directly from him. For instance, take the 12 apostles. They were taught directly by him. Take even that one apostle who was um, an unusual apostle. As he said, he was... Um, I can't remember his language now that he used, but he was like born in an unusual time or something like that. It was after Christ had gone to glory that he met Christ when Christ appeared to him on the road to Emmaus. He had direct communication with Christ. These extraordinary gifts were also men who received special revelation from Christ and then communicated that special revelation to us. Why do we have this epistle called Ephesians? Because God somehow communicated to Paul what he wanted him to write, and then Paul wrote it down for us. That makes him an extraordinary gift of Christ. And these extraordinary gifts also did things like perform miracles. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul speaks about his having performed the signs of an apostle. He did signs and wonders, as the New Testament calls them. Not, that's not something done by what we would call ordinary gifts of Christ. And then furthermore, they're extraordinary in this way, that these gifts that are mentioned in verse 11 that are extraordinary, and that would be apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Pastors and teachers, no, they're under the next heading. Those gifts... Some people would argue about evangelists. I will not. I don't have the time. But whether you, wherever you categorize them, I, I would say we categorize them as extraordinary gifts because we don't have any other directions about them uh, other than what you have in Paul's words to Timothy. But extraordinary gifts... And the last part about being an extraordinary gift is they are restricted to the New Testament age. That is the time when the apostles were still alive 
and the New Testament was being written. And when those things were finished, so were what we call extraordinary gifts. They're gone. But that leads us to the second heading, which has greater relevance for us, at least in terms of our life on a day-to-day basis, the ordinary gifts, and that would be what we could call standing gifts. In other words, the apostolic age is gone. What's left? The church is left. And there are some of the gifts mentioned here that are still left. They're still standing, and that would be pastors and teachers. And they will be gifts that exist in the church until Christ comes. So that's why they're ordinary gifts. They're still present. They're not apostolic. They're not extraordinarily extraordinary in the sense that there are supernatural phenomena like direct revelation and miracles associated with them. So if you came here wanting to hear anything directly from God other than what's in his word, or if you came here to see a miracle, I am so sorry to disappoint you. But we have what is better than that. We have the Word of God written, and we have the Word of God spoken. I believe that the best way to understand this last part, this, the, net, the um, ordinary gifts, when it says some pastors and teachers, based on the way we find it in the original language, is that it's talking about one office. So a pastor and teacher refers to one man, pastors and teachers to more than one, but the point is, it's talking about the one leading, preaching, teaching office that there is in the church. The different biblical language, language for it is in the New Testament, pastor, bishop, or elder. It's all referring to the one office. And here it's described as pastors and teachers. They're called pastors because they lead. The word for pastor is the same as the word for shepherd. So they lead the people of God. And they're called teachers because they um, lead by feeding with the word of God. So they lead and feed, just like Jesus said to Peter in John 21, tend my sheep, Peter. And he said, feed my sheep. That's what pastors do. They tend the flock of God. They feed the flock of God with the word of God. Those are the ordinary gifts. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's what's especially relevant to us. Now, it's very relevant to us to understand what the Bible teaches about the supernatural or the extraordinary gifts because we deal on a constant basis with the word of God. And that's where those leaders, those extraordinary gifts of Christ are enshrined in a sense we could say in the Bible, which is the word of God. Old Testament, because of the Old Testament prophets, as well as the New Testament, with the New Testament prophets and the apostles with their words written down here, the very word of God. But for our day-to-day life in the church of Christ, the ordinary gifts are what are still present. So there's Christ's gifts to his church. The second thing we want to notice, and here we'll spend the rest of our time, is Christ's goal for his church. And that's in verses 12 and 13. What are the goals of Christ giving these gifts to the church? There's a sense in which we could say if God wanted to simply um, save his people without giving 
these ordinary gifts, pastors and teachers, he could. He could just impart the Spirit through the word read and say, keep reading your Bible, keep talking to one another, join together in groups, call them churches, but don't appoint any leaders in the churches. But he didn't say that. And so what is the purpose of his giving the gifts? Why did he give some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and then even after they departed from the scene, why did he give some pastors and teachings? What's the goal? Well, it's in verses 12 and 13. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it really goes on through verse 16, but we're just going to keep our focus, especially to verses 12 and 13. So Christ's goal for his church, I likewise break this down into two parts. First of all, the immediate goal and the remote goal or the ultimate goal. So we have the immediate, immediate or the direct goal of Christ's gifts to the church, and that is ministry. See how it states it in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the point is that God gives these gifts to the church, and it's for the purpose of ministry. So it's kind of like this. God gives the gift, and then you do something with the gift. They teach the people, and then you come to the end. So it's kind of like you go to the store, and you get seeds in the spring, and then you take those seeds, and you plant them in the ground. That's not the, the end goal. The end goal is the fruit that comes up later. But this is how it works. So Christ gives these gifts to the church, they exercise their gifts, and what results in the first place is ministry, according to verse 12. There are a couple of different views among people of Reformed persuasion about who is doing the work of the ministry in verse 12. It says, Christ gives the gift for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And the first way to understand it is this. And a lot of Presbyterians view it this way. I'm not saying all, but a lot of them do. And I'm not saying that makes it right or wrong. I'm just pointing that out. And that is this, that it's especially talking about the gifts here. So the pastors and teachers they are the ones who do the work of the ministry. So they would understand it this way. Christ gave these gifts to the church, the pastors and teachers, and then they understand verse 12 as basically saying three things. Equipping the saints, that's what the pastors do. They equip the saints. Second, the work of the ministry. That's what pastors do, the work of the ministry. I might use that kind of language when someone says, what is the work that you do? I might say, my work is the work of the ministry. So it makes good sense. And then the third thing the pastors do is the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. And grammatically it can work. 
Because notice how they're all stated in this parallel way. He gave the pastors for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That makes sense. It's not an unbiblical notion at all. <clears throat> but the other way to understand it is that it's the gifts, the pastors and teachers, and the entire body of the church who do the work of the ministry. And that works grammatically as well. Notice how we would read it. That he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So in other words, when I stand here right now, you're a saint, especially if you're a member of this church, I'm trying to do what I do to equip you. And you might ask, well, pastor, what are you trying to equip us for? Well, then we would read on. For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So in other words, I want to equip you so you all can minister to each other. Now that is an equally biblical idea. And the, it works with the grammar here just as the other idea does. So if someone, and I've, I know brethren, I know Reformed Baptist men who take the first view. I don't take the first, I take the second. And I don't get into arguments with them. I'll discuss the text. I say what I think. But I, I think their idea is a biblical idea, even if it's not expressed in this text. I hope they would acknowledge that mine is, even if it's not what Paul is exactly saying here. But I do happen to believe that if we look at the text in its setting, it helps us to understand that it's talking about my equipping you all for you all to minister to each other. And here's why I say that. To have the statement in verse 12 for equipping the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, I teach you, you learn things, and then you mix it up with one another, and a lot more teaching and learning and building up goes on. Why do I say that? Because if I read the next four verses, it especially points me in that direction. Let's notice. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, there's the edification, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. In other words, and this would work for the pastor doing this, is I teach you things, you learn better, you're able to discern truth from error in a better way. And then verse 15 but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now, am just I supposed to speak the truth in love? Or you all in your interaction with one another as well? I mean, both are true, obviously, but now especially let's look at verse 16. That we may all grow up, end of verse 15, in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, every smallest part of the body is supplying something in this process in view here, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying itself in love. So as we look at the whole passage, and in this case, it's all part of the same sentence from verse 11 down to verse 16, it's evident that Paul has in view that every part of the body of Christ is engaging in this work. So that's why I take the interpretation I do. I'm here to equip you all for the work of ministry one to another for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the idea. Let's just go back to Romans 12 for a moment because this is another reason why I think Paul has this idea in view here besides the fact that I think the text itself especially points in that direction. But think when Paul has talked about places in the Bible, the New Testament, where Paul has talked about the different parts of the body and gifts that we have besides just the public gifts of pastor and teacher. Look at Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. So Paul's, in fact, we even let's go to verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So in other words, think soberly. You haven't been called to be an apostle, Paul says, but that doesn't mean God hasn't given you gifts and faith to exercise those gifts. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and there's the same language we have in Ephesians 4, right? The body of Christ being built up. As we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. We're not all teachers and preachers. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy and perform portion to our faith. There's a supernatural gift that's gone now. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality. In other words, it's a gift of God to be able to put something in the offering basket. And if someone, because of God's mercy and kindness toward him is able to put in more than a lot of people that's how we should understand that he who gives with liberality he who leads with diligence he who shows mercy with cheerfulness paul has a lot of different things in view that he categorizes as gifts it's not just extraordinary gifts like an apostle and it's not just ordinary public gifts like a preacher or a pastor but many many things and so this is the idea of verse 12 i believe it's for the equipping of the saints i preach to equip you so that you may use your gifts to minister to one another and as paul said 
you should look at it that way. Everybody has some measure of faith to use whatever gift God has given him for the good of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 is another passage that in the last half of that chapter makes this point, and it makes it in this way. Even if your gift is not a public gift, even if it's not a gift that's prominent and noticeable and makes people say, wow, that was sure helpful, pastor, or something like that at the end of the service, your gift is not inconsequential. And you shouldn't think nothing of it, neither should anyone else. Because Paul says, no matter what part of the body we are, every part is necessary. You might say, well, the, 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 the elbow is not as important as the mouth. And the, um, the, the, the big toe is not as important as the eye. Well, Paul grants you that, doesn't he? But just think of it this way. Would it be okay with you if I just said, so is it all right if I could lop off your big toe and give it to somebody else? Then you'd say no. Or if I say, well, if I just, if I just took the, the, the lower two-thirds of your arm so I could give your elbow to someone else, would that be okay with you? Oh, no, it wouldn't. And that's the way we should think. So there are, there are the gifts, the pastors that are mentioned here, and then there's the entire body ministering to one another. The process may begin with the preaching of the pastor, but it doesn't end there. And if in any ch given church it does end there, because everyone looks at it like, well, it's the pastor's job and the pastor's job only to minister, then there's something wrong with that body, with that church. Whether that's the main point of this passage or not, I think it is what Paul is saying in verse 12. So there's the immediate or the direct goal of these gifts for the church to help us all to minister to one another and build up the body of Christ. That's the immediate or the direct goal, ministry. But then, as I said, there's another goal here, and that's what we could call the remote goal or the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal here? Well, the ultimate goal is fruit. And that's what's stated in verse 13. Why do we want to minister to one another so we can all bear fruit? And here is how it expresses it in verse 13. It says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'm going to focus on two specifics here as to what the fruits are. Why did Christ give gifts to the church? In our case, he's given us, right now we have five pastors. Why did he give us to the church? One, so that we might all minister to each other. And what's the goal in view? That we minister to each other so that what? Two things Paul especially focuses on here are unity, and then secondly, maturity. So unity and maturity. Those are the two fruits that we're going to focus on. Start out with unity, the first part of the verse. We are to minister to one another and edify one another till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So all means the body, it means the church, that we all want to come to unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. 
of God. The body means um, the church. So when it says here, till we all come to the unity of, of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, it's not talking about each individual believer. You already have, I hope anyway, at least in most circumstances, unity with yourself. That's not his view here. He wants there to be greater unity among the members of the body, greater unity in the church. So the all means the body, not just each individual member. And the all, of course, would include the gifts, the pastors, and in the first century, the apostles themselves. So that we shouldn't be thinking, and this is one of my complaints about that first view when it says, for the equipping of the saints, the work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ only refers to pastors. That's one of my complaints about it. That view can lead to a thinking that, boy, the pastors are a really special class. What they do, only they can do. Well, I will say there are some things I'm called to do that only I should do in the church. But in terms of ministering to Christians in our church, I am not the only one that can do that. The pastors are not the only ones. And in terms of, um, like it says, edifying the body of Christ, it's not just the pastors. It's, as I said, it's the whole body that does that work. And we should look at it that way. And that's a note that Pastor Hoffmeyer has been sounding as he's been going through the church constitution recently in the adult Bible class, by the way. So we shouldn't think that. They're above us. They're a special class. You know, whatever they're doing to minister to the saints, we might think, I must not try that at home. No, like I think Pastor Smith is the one who most frequently says, you know, what we do in admonishing brethren, you can also do among yourselves when you are um, speaking to each other and learning things about one another and you see areas of potential growth, it's okay to open your mouth and say something. Like Paul wrote in Romans 12, he who, ex he who has the gift of exhortation, let him exhort. And the other thing we shouldn't think when we think about just uh, a special class is this, and this is another bad way of thinking. Sometimes people don't do it because they're um, idolizing pastors in a way that they shouldn't. Sometimes I think they do it out of laziness. In other words, well, that's the pastor's work. No, the pastor's work is to equip the saints so that all of us can do the work of the ministry to one another and build up the body of Christ together. And that's a point, again, that has been made by Pastor Hoffmeyer in those lessons. So Christ's goal for his church is what we're looking at. The immediate goal is ministry. The remote or the ultimate goal is fruit. That's verse 13. The first specific is unity. We want to see more and more unity in the church. The second fruit, the second specific in terms of the goal is, as I said, maturity, or we could say perfection. Let's read verse 13 again. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
We want greater unity in the church. That's our goal. And here's the second one. It's maturity to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the perfect man, it doesn't mean sinless. Now, ultimately, it will be sinless in glory. But the point is, this is a goal that we are to be aiming at every single day of our life as part of the church of Christ. Every single day. We want the, us, ourselves to become, as a church, more and more perfect. And it's a legitimate translation of the word perfection, to, or perfect, to translate it mature, to a, to a mature man. To the, and that's how the, what the language is, is pointing to, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, a grown man. Let's look at it this way. We all start, start out in our Christian life, let's look at it in an individual level, small. I think it's a phenomenon that when we're first converted, we think we know a lot more than we do. And as we go on, we learn more and more how much we don't know, and then we think we know less than we used to know. Kind of like in life with young people, and then they grow. It happens in a spiritual level as well, and it happens on an individual level, and eventually there's maturation. God is perfecting us, to use the biblical language. That happens. But notice how it states it, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is happening in the church as well. And the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, literally, that will not happen till glory. It will happen in glory. But it happens by degrees here. And that's what Paul is describing, a process of maturation. And he's not focusing especially on individuals, though that's also a thing in the Bible, and I'll mention it. But he's focusing especially on a congregation. And so that's it. The corporate aspect is especially what Paul has in view here with these words. Now, how do we grow as a congregation? How do we grow as the body of Christ? Well, Part of the means of that is we grow as individual Christians, certainly. That's part of the means of growing as a congregation. In other words, if we have a congregation that has just a few mature Christians, but a lot of relatively new Christians, and um, you know they're wet behind the ears, they're young, they're zealous but without knowledge, etc., over time, if they persevere, they're going to become more mature Christians. And the people who are already mature Christians, who haven't died yet, have become even more mature Christians. And through that personal growth, there's growth in the whole body. There's maturation. So each member grows. We're striving not to sin, but I hope I can say at the end of this year, which is coming soon, I'm better at mortifying sin, and I've gone farther in the mortification of sin than I had come at the beginning of 2023. I hope we can all say that. And as that individual maturation goes on, if we hang together as a church, by definition, we have greater corporate maturation. 
or think of, from it, of it from a pastoral perspective, one of the ways that I aim and work to build up the whole body of Christ is by focusing at times more on a few individuals at a time. Maybe because they're bleating sheep. Whether they're saying, Pastor, could you come and talk to me? Or whether their uh, actions are speaking louder than words. And I say, you know, you need a pastor to come and talk to you. And I go and do it. Someone says, well, you're just focusing on one individual. But my perspective is, that's the way the whole body grows, as if one individual grows. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, him, that's Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. So that there Paul is saying when he says every man, he does mean every individual Christian. But the point is, when he's working on just one Christian, he's working on the whole body in terms of that local church that that one Christian belongs to. So let me make three observations here at this point about this matter of maturity and perfection and in terms of the goal of the Church of Christ. The first one is this. This is to be a never-ending pursuit. For pastors, like I just read in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, I want to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Do I know that no Christian in this church, no matter how long he's been here, no matter how faithful he is, no matter how mature he is, He'll never be sinless till Christ comes. Of course I know that. But isn't Paul saying in both these passages, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1, isn't he saying it's my job as a pastor to keep laboring to that end till the end of that person's life or until Christ comes? That's how I read it. I know it's true what I hear some pastors say sometimes if we're talking about um, um, you know, some of the difficult problems we face in churches not using names or things like that but i'm talking to another pastor or maybe i'm trying to get advice and he says you know you just have to realize sometimes that some people are going to go to heaven limping and that might be a statement of a puritan originally and you, and i know it's true but i don't like that statement and i don't use it often and here's the reason because i kind of look at it at my as my job to help them stop limping. So I think that's Paul's perspective. That's why I say this is to be a never-ending pursuit. The other second observation is this. It is an attainable pursuit. Paul is not talking about absolute perfection or sinlessness there when he says till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Now, he might have that in view as the end goal, but he has in, in view also all the advancement that happens in our individual lives and our corporate life until glory. So it's an attainable pursuit. He doesn't say, but you know, since it's perfection that's our ultimate goal, 
don't worry about it because that's not going to happen until glory. He doesn't say that. And you know, he didn't live that way. He looked at it as an attainable pursuit. What? That we could mature as individual Christians and especially as the body of Christ. We should look at it this way. The, that God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us, as a text that has been referenced in recent sermons here, He has given us all things, 1 Peter 2, I'm oh, sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, all things pertaining to life and godliness. God has given us everything we need, brethren, to grow in grace. That's true about the growth of every individual Christian. I know there are obstacles that some Christians face that are very, very big. I know among us, among all Christians, there are different levels of ability, different levels of talents or opportunities that God has given each one of us, different levels of grace, or to use the language we read in Romans 12, 3, different measures of faith. I know that. But it should be the aim of every Christian to grow in grace. No matter how, no matter how little grace or little faith you might say you have, it should be your aim to grow. And it should be the aim of every pastor to help every member to grow. And of every member of the body to help every other member to grow as far as we're able. So we shouldn't be thinking, well... You know, don't expect that of me because, you know, Pastor, I'm just a one-talent Christian. Or I, I'm a weak Christian. I mean, that's a teaching of the Bible, isn't it? There's people who are strong in faith and there are people who are weak in faith, Romans 14. Why should I expect a person who's weak in faith to act like he's strong in faith? Well, does it ever occur to you that a person who is weak in faith could become strong in faith? I think that happened with the apostles, didn't it? Where is your faith, Jesus said. It was there, you just could hardly see it. Not in the end. Brethren, don't resent it when your pastors have high expectations for you. Because we think highly of you. Maybe more highly than you think of yourself, but that's the way it is. And then a third observation is this. The focus here, as I said, is upon corporate growth, growth of the body, not just individual Christians. As I said, there's similarity to the individual growth of a Christian when we think of the growth of a church, the growth of the body. And I don't mean just the church getting larger numerically. That is not the first thing that should come to our minds when we think of growth in the church. We should think of this kind of growth here. Maturation till we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We should always be growing in our Christian life and we should always be growing as a church. And there's a problem if we're not. We should look at it in a similar way, brethren. We, individual Christians grow because God dwells within them, right? Right? Jesus said, I will, if you believe, I will come and make my home within you. John 14. The Father will come. The Holy Spirit will come. I will come. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul says, your body as a Christian, individual Christian, 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul is saying there, you shouldn't use it to commit fornication. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. That it will enable you to grow as a Christian. God imparts grace to you. He empowers you by dwelling in you so that you as an individual become more Christ-like. And you grow, 2 Peter 3.18, through that means in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I'm saying is we should look at the church as growing in the same way because that's what Paul is talking about here. Then the individual growth and the corporate growth are tied together like this. As I said already, the way to a unified congregation is that each member think biblically. Isn't that growing in, the, in, in coming to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? The more each member thinks biblically, the more unified we will be in that way. And then further... We will grow as we minister to one another in that each member is demonstrating greater and greater love for the other members of the body. And so I want to focus in the end here for a bit on Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. As here Paul mentions unity... But he also mentions this matter of love and Christ-likeness. I think in that sense, it's a parallel text. Paul writes there, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So there's a way, so there Paul is obviously talking about unity in the church of Christ, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Does it have to do with teaching? Yes. What else does it have to do with? Love. Having the same love. And notice how he fleshes that out a little bit more. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we'll stop right there. All right? So that's what Paul is talking about. Just like an individual Christian grows into a mature Christian, Paul is saying, so can a church do that. I've asked myself the question over the years about this church. And I've thought, why is this church what it is? Why is it that, and I'm not boasting when I say this, but because it's a lot of work for me. Why is it that so many pastors keep wanting to come here year after year at a pastor's conference in October. It's not just because of the great messages that they hear preached. They, they love coming to this church. 
And one of the reasons is, brethren, they look at this church as a church that is a mature man in the sense that it's farther along the way of Christian maturity than a lot of churches. And I'm saying that just by the grace of God. If I'm engaging in sinful boasting, then God have mercy on me, but I don't think I am. I'm just, because I've reflected on this over the years. What is it? We, we've had a very gifted pastor here over many, many years. I'm talking about before I came. And he's gone from here now. Why is this church still so blessed? Why? I can, I can put in these terms. I don't think I've ever said this from a pulpit before, but when I came here uh, and was trying to think about whether I should leave my nice, small church, quiet place, nobody bothering me, relatively speaking, in the Midwest, comfortable life, near my kids, etc. Why should I leave there and come here? And one of the things I did in that process, I asked people, why should I, other pastors that I knew, who knew this church, those were the men I asked, you think I should do this? One of the things they said was, routinely, I wouldn't want to have to follow in Pastor Martin's shoes. And here's how I looked at it. I look at it this way going to a church after Pastor Martin pastored it for 40-some years and then left. What kind of a church would I like to go to? A well-instructed congregation or a congregation that is not well-instructed? And that's how I looked at it. There's a lot of blessings that I've enjoyed coming to a congregation that has been well-instructed for a long period of time with a lot of mature Christians in it. And over time, they have gotten even more mature. It's a wonderful blessing. I don't ascribe that to any human being, not to Pastor Martin, not to myself, not to my fellow pastors, not to any previous pastor. I ascribe it to God, His goodness, His grace. But how does he work? Well, he works that way in individual Christians. They go from one level of maturity to another. But let's look at it. The Bible uses the analogy of a house, not just the analogy of a body. He uses the analogy of a house as well, or a building for the flock of God. And we could look at it this way. You have, you start, when you usually buy a house, unless you come from a wealthy family, you start out often what they call, with what they call a starter home, right? It's small. It has problems. You got to work on them. So you have this starter home, but you do some work. You fix the roof. You put new windows in. There's not gusts that are coming right through the windows like they weren't even there. Maybe you have to do mold remediation in the basement or something like that. But you do that. And then what happens? The house gets better, doesn't it? It's kind of like the description we have in verses 14 and 15, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. That happens. 
And may I say it, brethren, compared to the church where I labored for 19 years, especially in the first 10 or 12 of those years, I was constantly worried about these kinds of winds of false doctrine coming around. Because we had a starter home, if you will. And I used to think the slightest thing could have the effect like Sanballat and Tobiah said about the work of Nehemiah, a fox could knock down that wall. I don't look at it quite the same way here. Because there's been a lot of maturation that has gone on here. And so I look at it this way, brethren. Those kinds of things don't as easily happen in a mature congregation. They can happen if we grow careless. So I'm not saying we don't need to be vigilant. But I'm just saying that this is how God works. Could we say, and I'm just going to end here. And... Um, if you want me to finish this tonight, I, I'll do it. But I leave that up to my fellow pastor. I'll do it another time otherwise. But could we say, brethren, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just make his home in individuals. He doesn't just stake out a spot in individual Christians. He does that in churches as well. There's another passage about in the same epistle that I quoted where it says in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, that you, the individual Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But earlier on in Ephesians, in Corinthians, I should say, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have this uh, statement from Paul. Do you not know that you, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and there it's a plural you, so it means the church. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, and it means the church, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you as the people of God are. In other words, there was division in the body of Christ. So he's saying you should look at yourself, the church, as the temple of God, and it's a fearful thing to cause division in the body of Christ. It's the home of the Holy Spirit. And my point is this, as I reflected on this, I thought, yes, the Spirit of God does make his home in churches as well as individual Christians. He does stake out a spot in congregations and not just individual Christians. And when he does, he doesn't like to leave. And so he stays. And the work goes on. And it can go on over a long period of time. And when it does, it's a great, great blessing. You see the fulfillment, at least what we experience of it on this side of glory in Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It should continue to go on throughout this age. It'll never be finished in this age. It'll never be spotless in this age, but we're engaged in the process. So my closing remarks for this morning are these then, brethren. In light of that, if the Spirit of God is dwelling here, and I believe He is, 
be jealous to keep him here. Be jealous to keep him. I especially think of the later part of this chapter, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How's that going to happen, Paul? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Be jealous to keep the Spirit. Don't grieve Him away. Specifically here, by ungodly treatment of your brethren, unkind treatment of your brethren, ungracious treatment of them. And then the other thing would be pray. Keep praying that the Spirit of God will be pleased to dwell here. We have the promise of Jesus, don't we? That if God gives, if, if, if you as a father give food to your children when they ask, how much more will God give you his Holy Spirit if you ask? And so, brethren, keep praying that God will keep the Spirit of God in this church. Keep making it a point of great importance and a priority to come to the house of God, not only on the Lord's days, but Wednesday nights, to cry out that God would continue to dwell in this body. We take 10 to 15 minutes every Wednesday night, don't we? To pray that God will be here at this hour on the Lord's day. Do you make no connection in your minds? That's, that's one of the reasons it happens Sunday after Sunday? We should. Brethren, be jealous to keep the Spirit of God so that God may never write Ichabod over the door of Trinity Baptist Church. May God help us and may God bless us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts that you would help us to understand this passage and help us to live in the light of it. May we never grieve your Holy Spirit away from this church. Father, may we never grieve your Holy Spirit away from ourselves, as David prayed in Psalm 51 because of his personal sin. But we ask that you would never make us, any one of us individuals, the cause of the departure of the Spirit of God from this assembly, or even the waning of his presence and his work and his blessing. Hear us, for we ask these things in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen.